Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Well, this morning we're going to be continuing in our study of 2 Samuel. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you were with us last week in 2 Samuel chapter 11, you'll know that 2 Samuel chapter 11 was one of the most significant chapters in the entire book of 2 Samuel. You remember in that chapter that uh, David pursued an affair with the lovely Bathsheba, and when she unexpectedly showed up pregnant from his one-night stand, he tried to figure out how to uh, get rid of those responsibilities a little bit. He eventually ended up bumping off her husband, a man named Uriah, to get him out of the picture. Prior to this, as we've been following David through First and Second Samuel, he's been really pretty much of a good guy. He's a godly man, a man of great character, who had so many things going right in his life. But as we discovered last week, there is one particular area that he had not brought into submission to God, which was his sexual life. As we looked at the book of Deuteronomy about what kings of Israel are supposed to be like, it specifically says they're not supposed to pursue acquiring many wives. Yet what did David do? He pursued acquiring many wives. First, 2 Samuel chapter 3 is a harem list. He pursued more wives then. 2 Samuel chapter 5, another harem list. He pursued more wives. When he comes along to 2 Samuel chapter 11, he's been pursuing many additional wives. He just gets to the point he decides to pursue somebody else's wife. It's the logical progression because he's been indulging himself sexually, not learning to restrain himself sexually. When he sees a gorgeous woman, he just takes her to himself. And obviously that was a disaster. Things did not end well. Well, in all of 2 Samuel 11, God is not mentioned until the very last line, where it reads this, which is on the top of your outline. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Do you catch that's a major understatement? You think God was displeased? I mean, he's ticked. God is angry. God is fuming. David is trying to get away with murder and adultery. He's like a dog with a bone. You know how the dog like goes to the backyard and tries to bury the bone and hopes you'll never find it, but everybody knows where it is? That's sort of what's going on with David. He's trying to bury the act of murder and the act of adultery. But as we learned last week, a lot of people sort of know what's going on. The palace servants, they were involved in getting Bathsheba and bringing Bathsheba to him. They know what's going on. Joab, he, he was given the letter from David directing him to assassinate Uriah. He knows what's going on. And now, at this point, after the baby is born, anybody you can count to nine knows that it's not adding up. The baby was born way too early. But most importantly, the one person who knows everything about what's going on is God. And he is not happy one bit. Scholars believe that some time has passed by the time you get to 2 Samuel chapter 12, between the events of 2 Samuel 11 and 12, possibly about a year. The baby has been born. This should be a wonderful time for David, 
a newborn son. Time when most fathers would just be thrilled with God's blessing on their life. But if there was a smile on David's face, folks, it wasn't a genuine smile. It was a pasted on smile. Psalm 32, which was written later, David describes what he felt like in that time after he'd done the murder and adultery. It says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He's pretending to be happy, if anything. But deep inside, his sin is eating him alive. He is in complete agony. And then we turn the page. And we come to 2 Samuel chapter 12, where we find ourselves today. And we read this. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him. Nathan, by the way, is the prophet that God is using in this generation to speak his words to his people. It's interesting that it says the Lord sent Nathan to David. This word send, if you were with us in 2 Samuel chapter 11, you'll remember it's been used a lot in that chapter. David sent to inquire of Bathsheba. David sent for Bathsheba. David sent for Uriah. David sent Uriah back to the front lines with Joab. And then finally, David sent for Bathsheba and brought her to his home to be his wife. David's been doing all the sending because he's the king. He's large and in charge. But we turn the page. Now who's doing the sending? Who's really large and in charge? God. He sends Nathan to David. And if you're like me, you're going, oh boy, he's in trouble. This is going to get ugly. There's going to be some blood on the carpet when this one's done. God is angry. It's true. It's going to get ugly as we continue through this chapter. It's going to be some serious consequences to pay. But I want you to pause and think it through this way. When God sends Nathan to David to call him on the carpet for his sin, it's not because God hates David. It's because God, it's because God loves him. If God hated David, he wouldn't send a prophet calling him to repent. He would send an assassin with a knife. He sent a prophet calling him to repent because the only way that David can go forward. The only way there's hope for David, there's ever future for David, is if he confesses his sin, he repents of his sin, and he's brought back into a right relationship with God. There's some application, I think, here for all of us. There's times in our life, for each one of us, where we have wandered away from God, where we have pursued sinful things. We've made sinful choices. Many times, what do we like to do? Just like David, we try to hide those things, don't we? We try to bury those things. We hope nobody ever knows. But then God speaks to us. Maybe it's just when we're reading his word, and his words are used by his Holy Spirit to really strongly convict our hearts of what we've done. 
Or maybe it's when you're listening to a pastor who's preaching his word, God's word, and God uses the, his written word that is now the preached word to bring great conviction of something you have done to lead you to repentance. Maybe it's even a godly friend who comes up to you and says, you know, this stuff I'm seeing in your life, it doesn't add up to me. Talk to me about this. Now, folks, those are painful times, aren't they? Very humbling times, painful times. But folks, understand they are good times. That is God using his word to convict us of sin, to bring us to repentance of sin, not because he hates us, but it's because he loves us. And the only way forward is through confession, repentance, and restoration. If he didn't love us, what would he do? Send an assassin to kill us. So folks, when that happens to us, just like it's happening to David, realize God's love. Now, Nathan has this task. He's been told by God to go to David to speak to him about his sin. This is a scary job. David has killed somebody. If it doesn't go over right, maybe David's going to try and kill Nathan too. After all, David's sort of acting like one of those Mexican cartel members, you know, bumping people off all the time. Now, I don't know if this is the way it happened, but I can imagine it happened this way, that David was praying, constantly asking God for wisdom. How am I supposed, excuse me, Nathan's praying, asking God for wisdom. How am I supposed to approach David with this issue of his sin that doesn't get him defensive, that makes him receptive? And God, through his Holy Spirit, I believe, told David, why don't we approach him indirectly and tell him a story? And that's the first point. David, or Nathan, indirectly confronted David about his sin. And here's the story that Nathan told. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. So this is the story about rich neighbor, poor neighbor. We've heard those ones before, haven't we? The rich neighbor has all kinds of wealth, all kinds of herds. The poor neighbor only has one little ewe lamb that he has purchased. Now, what's a ewe lamb? A ewe lamb is a female lamb that is so young it is still nursing on a bottle. It's cute, it's adorable, it's trusting. And if you have one of those, um, like, it's cute genes in your, in your life, you would be drawn to the little innocent lamb. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, and it used to eat of his morsel and drink of his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. The poor man didn't have a lot of money, but I'll tell you what he did have, a happy home life. And in that home, the center of the joy in that family was this little, cute, adorable ewe lamb that everybody, especially the man, loved. Now, David could connect with this. Remember 1 Samuel? What did David start out as when he was a boy? He was a shepherd. He knew what it was like to care for little lambs, to feed that little lamb from the bottle, 
how innocent, how trusting, how gentle that little lamb would be, that it would be in the care of the shepherd. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. He was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Before we take apart the text, I just want to point out a couple of interesting things. We don't see this as well in the English, but it is very apparent in the Hebrew. There is a very careful amount of connection between this story and what David had done with Bathsheba. Let me point out a few of these things. When it talks about this little sheep used to lie in the poor, in the poor man's arms, that lie in the poor man's arms in, in the Hebrew, that's a Hebrew colloquialism for what a husband and wife would be doing together that intimacy between them. When it says that the little ewe lamb was like a daughter to him, the Hebrew word for daughter is the word bath. What was her name? Bathsheba. When it says that the rich man took the little ewe lamb, that Hebrew word for took is the exact same Hebrew word used in the last chapter to the moment when David took Bathsheba. There's a number of these intricacies and connections that would tie these two stories very tightly together. But David didn't see any of it. Blew right past him. But the shepherding side of him and that trusting little lamb that he knew, and when he heard what this rich man had done, David assumed this is a true story. And as the king, whose job was really to be the judge of the nation, he quickly passed down judgment on this man. It says, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David's emotional response is this rich man is a complete jerk. He deserves to die. But David knows that stealing a little lamb is not a capital offense. He can't hand out a capital punishment on the guy. He has to follow God's law, which would make the stealing and taking and killing of a little lamb something that needed to be restored fourfold. I'll show you what I mean. If you go to Exodus 22, verse 1, we find this. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So the only legal penalty that David can hand down is fourfold restoration, is what has to be done to the poor man for the rich man who took his sheep. Now comes the fun part. I call this Nathan flipped the tables to expose David's sin. Then all of a sudden, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Gotcha. You are the rich man in the story. You are the guy with many wives. Uriah is the poor man in the story. He's the one who only had one wife, one young, sweet, innocent, 
trusting little lady, and you took her to yourself when you had more than enough in the way of feminine charms. And now the gloves come off, and Nathan is going to speak directly for God to David at this point. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. That's usually a good warm-up, isn't it? I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would, have add, I would add to you as much more. The key word that keeps getting repeated is I. God says, do you understand? I took you from the shepherd's folds. I protected you so many times from Saul. I gave you your master's wives. Now, we know that David has built up his own harem, but he also had King Saul's old harem. This guy has, like, all over the place when it comes to wives. He's the leader of Israel. He's the leader of Judah. God's given him everything. He says, if you were short on something, I would have given you even more. What makes David's sin against Uriah so incredibly bad is David had more than enough of everything. And all Uriah had was one sweet, pure, innocent wife that was the delight of his life and the delight of his family. And yet David, like a cold-hearted snake, took her. Now David, or God gets very specific with David. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. God says to David, don't tell me Uriah just happened to die in battle. I know the truth. I know the letter you sent to Joab. I know that he was assassinated. You knew everything you did was wrong, but you despised my word. You knew the 10th commandment says you should not covet your neighbor's wife. You knew that another commandment says adultery is wrong. Another commandment says murder is wrong. You had more than enough, but you just decided to just do your own thing anyway. Now, it's interesting where it says that David despised the word of the Lord. There's some interesting Hebrew pieces going on here. That Hebrew phrase is actually found earlier. It's found in 1 Samuel. Remember the sons of Eli? Very beginning of 1 Samuel, they were known as they despised the word of the Lord. And even though they served in the temple and they were married men, they were sleeping with the women, who, young women who served in the temple. They knew it was wrong and they did it anyway. And as a result, God struck them dead. By using this exact phraseology, God is saying to David, you are acting just like the sons of Eli. That's the nature and character that you have fallen to at this point. Now we go from analysis to God goes to his response. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. You killed Uriah with the sword. The sword is never going to depart from your family. 
And from this point forward, you will find that David's family and life is consumed with chaos and violence. It's interesting. Earlier in the story, David said that the proper response to the poor man after the rich man stole his one little ewe lamb was a fourfold restitution. In the upcoming years of David's life, four of his sons will die as a result of him taking Uriah's life. First will be his son by Bathsheba that we'll study more in a few moments. Then will be Absalom. Then will be Amnon. And also will be Adonijah. David says, you took Uriah's life. I'm taking four of your son's lives. Fourfold restitution. And then God moves on from the murder of Uriah and his response to it to David's adultery with Bathsheba and his response to it. Because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah to be your wife, thus says the Lord, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Is that literally fulfilled later in his life? Definitely. You remember his son Absalom, who later on in time will lead a rebellion against his own father? And his father, David, will leave some of the wives in the house to take care of the house when he is gone and he's driven out of the city of Jerusalem. Absalom arrives, and what is the first thing he does? Sleeps with those wives to defile them. Where, where does he sleep with them? On the roof, in public eye of the rest of the nation. The very same roof that David did his lustful thoughts about Bathsheba, below is the same roof that David's wives will be defiled by Absalom on. Isn't that amazing how they connect together? Now, I want to pause. I want to pause and just think about some lessons that we can learn from this. Is David loved by God? Is David chosen by God? Is David the king? Yet, when he chose to sin, he will now face deep, long-lasting consequences that will affect the rest of his life. Can David be forgiven of his sin? Well, we'll find out in a few minutes. Yes, he can be forgiven of his sin. He will be forgiven of his sin. But David will still face deep and serious consequences for his sin. And here's what I want to let you know. As I was wrestling with this, I think as Christians, we take our sin far too lightly. So I can sin, it's no big deal, because I'll ask Jesus and he forgives me. Jesus will forgive you, but it does not necessarily mean you will escape the consequences. And some of those consequences will last for decades. Some of those consequences will last until your feet go in the grave. It is always much better to avoid sin in the first place 
than needing to seek forgiveness for sin in the second place. Is God's grace amazing in the midst of our sin? Oh, yes, it is. We're going to see that in a few minutes more as we get a little later in the chapter. But still, there's always consequences for sin. It says this in Hebrews 10.31, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Or Galatians 6.7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. There are consequences to what we choose to do. Now David has been called on the carpet. His sin has been exposed. Consequences have been revealed. And what do we find? Point three is God's word shattered David. It says this in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That year of hiding, that year of pretending it didn't exist, all that covering, all that burial, David throws his hands up, I'm guilty. You've got me. You're exactly right. I did what was wrong. In 2 Samuel 12, it's really only two words in Hebrew where David says, says I have sinned against the Lord. But he actually said a lot more than that. The Bible has Psalm 51 in it. And if you look at the superscription of Psalm 51, you know it was a psalm he wrote in response to being called on the carpet by Nathan for his sin with Bathsheba. And I'm going to read a section of it because I think it's very instructive, not just for David repenting of his sin, but folks, it's a guide for each one of us when we have to repent of our sin after we've done wrong. David says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Wash all this stuff out of me. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Every single day, David remembers and relives the sin against you. And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. By the way, that doesn't mean that he didn't do wrong to, to Uriah and he didn't do wrong to Bathsheba. Yes, he did. But comparatively, his sin towards God after all of his goodness was far worse than any other sin he could do to another human being. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in your inward being, and teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. What's this hyssop thing? In the sacrificial system, they would sacrifice an animal, and they take a hyssop branch, and they dip it, in the blood, and they'd go like this, and they'd sprinkle the blood on the people. That blood has covered their sin. That he's atone, it's atoned for their sin. And this is what David's talking about here. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then a little bit later on in Psalm 51, he says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David says, I don't come bringing a goat. I don't come bringing a lamb. I don't come bringing an ox. All I have is a broken heart. A broken and contrite heart is what I give to you. Contrite for what I've done, and I know you will accept that. Now, what's so amazing when we return to 2 Samuel 12 are the next words that are spoken. David confesses his sin, and look how it responds. Then Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. As soon as David confesses it, God forgives it. Folks, that's an amazing truth I think we need to take to the bank. When we confess our sin, we say, Lord, can you ever forgive me? Can you ever forgive me? And then we go back and say the same thing the next day and the next day and a week later. Folks, when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How fast? Like that. That is how good God is to you. That is how much God loves you. They say David has confessed his sin. He is forgiven of his sin. But what does that mean? According to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, the penalty for adultery is death. David will not die. According to Exodus 21, verse 2, the penalty for his murder of Uriah is death. David will not die because he's been forgiven of his sin. Maybe most amazingly is this. Saul, when he sinned, he was ultimately rejected by the Lord. David, he repents. He is forgiven by the Lord. He will not be rejected as king, but he will continue as king. But I do want to point this out. He is forgiven. He will not die. He's not rejected as king. But the consequences that we read in verses 10 through 12 will still come out in his life. Now, here's the first one. David's son died because of his sin. Verse 14. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. I want you to put yourself in David's shoes. This son, this little son that you love, the son that Bathsheba adores, becomes sick, really sick. And you know that that child is sick because of you and your sin. Imagine how that would devastate you. When my uh, children were young, Cindy and I took a trip to Florida to see one of her relatives. One of those places of Florida that's really in the middle of nowhere. No hospitals, really hard to get to doctors. And 
my middle son came down with, I think it was the rotovirus, where they constantly puke and can't keep anything down for days and days. And you know, we're thinking, he'll get over this, but he keeps getting sick and keeps getting sick. And I picked him up and he was just skin and bones. And I'm starting to cry. I'm crying as a dad. I'm like, Lord, stop this. Lord, let me suffer. I would rather suffer than to see my son suffer. It breaks my heart. A long story on that is, I said to Cindy, put him in the truck. The sand buckets are now turning into pute buckets. We're driving home. And thankfully, they're okay. But put yourself in David's shoes, watching his son suffer, suffering because of his sin. Break his heart. Now, David, therefore, sought God on behalf of the child. And he fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of the house stood beside him to raise him from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. In desperation, the God that he had turned away from is the God that he sought. David, who only cared about himself, now desperately cared about somebody else, his own son. It says he fasted, which means he was praying so hard and so desperately for his son, he would not even take time to eat and get off the ground as he prayed for him. The Hebrew makes it apparent that he didn't just fast and pray for his son for one day, but he did that for seven straight days, desperately praying for his son, watching his son suffer because of his sin, because he murdered Uriah, his son is suffering and will die. And on the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Well, this is not what his servants expected. Desperately, he was praying for his son while he was alive, but after he died, he went to the Lord's house and worshipped, and then he went to his own house and finally ate. I thought about this. David, after his son died, he ended up going to the Lord's house and worshipping. Interestingly, that's the same thing that Job did. In the beginning of Job, after his sons died. Let me show you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and he worshipped. And he said, Naked I have come from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return to the shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let me come back in a moment to this whole idea of worship in the midst of grief. Continue the story. 
Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and you ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? And then he said these words, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Let me give you two points of application we can pull out of this little section of verses. First, let's talk about grief. What do these verses teach us about grief? Here's the thing I'd like to say. Grief shouldn't keep us from God. It should drive us to God. Grief shouldn't keep us from God. It should drive us to him. As David was filled with grief, he sought the Lord in prayer. And then after his son died, he went to the Lord's house and worshiped, just like Job did. And here's the next point about grief. God uses his word, worship and prayer, to carry us through times of loss. I know that when there's a time of great loss, for instance, the death of a child, it's very easy to want to just be alone, get to yourself, withdraw from society, withdraw from the church, withdraw from people, and be alone. And I understand that. But I also know that it's in that time of grief and brokenness that we have to run to the Lord and not from him if we're going to be able to make it through. And we need to be able to worship the Lord and let, as we worship him, let him minister back to us and help us be able to carry through those difficult times. We need to pray to the Lord, not run from the Lord, and let his Holy Spirit put healing salve on the wounds of our own hearts. The next thing I want to point out from these verses is what do these verses teach us about the loss of a child? David's words give us hope for the salvation of children who die. There are many Christians who have lost their children. Some they have lost before birth and they're stillborn. Some they have lost after birth, shortly after birth. And you wonder, what happens to that child? David's words were confident. He shall not come to be with me, but I shall go to be with him. David was confident that when he died and he went into the presence of the Lord, there wouldn't be the Lord there, but the son, the infant son that died, would be there with him. He was confident that infant son was brought into the presence of Jesus Christ because of God's amazing grace. And folks, I think that as Christian parents, we need those words to comfort us in the loss of the children we love who die either before birth or after birth. The next thing we need to see from this is death doesn't sever the relationship with our children. David is very clear that he will see his son again. 
Well, he's not going to be able to be there to see his son go on his first date. He's not going to be able to see his son walk down the aisle of marriage. But when he is with the Lord, there he will see his son. And on the new creation of the new heavens and the new earth, he has an eternity to make wonderful memories with the son he lost. So if you have a son or a daughter or a child that has died while only an infant or even before birth, know that in heaven you will have an eternity to spend time with that child, to make wonderful memories with that child. The relationship was only temporarily paused, not permanently severed. Third is this, grieving parents should know their children in heaven are better cared for by God than mom and dad could have cared for them on earth. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which is what? Better by far. That those little children who are then home with Jesus are being cared for by Jesus better than mom and dad ever could. And I think that provides some relief for grieving parents. That brings us to point number five. God blessed David's relationship with Bathsheba. Well, we've seen that David will face some consequences for his sin, but he's also repented. He's been forgiven of his sin. He will not die, and he will not be rejected as king. But here is the amazing part. God is so good when we repent that he does amazing things says this, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son and called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. God gave them another child. His name was Solomon, which means the Hebrew word for peace. Things are finally right again between David and God. Interestingly, it says the Lord loved him. The, earlier in the text, we saw the Lord loved David and chose him to be the king. Now the Lord has set his love on Solomon and chosen him to be the king for the next generation. Here's a very important message for us to hear. David and Bathsheba's relationship had all the wrong beginnings, didn't it? should have never been taken place. But God is so amazing in his grace. He took that relationship that was a mess at the beginning, and when David repented, he made it a blessing at the end, didn't he? He redeemed it and brought Solomon, <laughs> brought Solomon as the next king through it. In fact, it says this in verses 24 through 25. And the Lord loved him and sent, a message by, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called him Jedidiah because of the Lord. Jedidiah means loved by God. That's his name. Now, there's one more point. It's this. And God blessed David as king. Remember at the beginning of chapter 11, where David should have been leading his nation in war against the Ammonites, but he was staying home. He was not doing his job. This restoration is to be full and complete. Now that David will not be removed as king, but will continue as king, he has to get back to his job, doesn't he? 
He has to go back to leading his nation in the wars like a king should do. And that is what we find. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, Well, I fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. It says he's taken the city of waters. Just for you who are wondering, the guys who are trying to figure this out, that means he has taken the water supply for the city. When the city's water supply is cut off, it's not going to be long until the city falls. So Joab, loyal that he is, says, David, you better get here. Otherwise, I'm going to get the credit instead of you. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Uh, for trivial buffs, it said that the crown was a talent of gold. That's 65 pounds. That's a big crown. We're talking major spinal compaction whenever you wear that one. But the point is, it was a very, very wealthy city. So David has repented. He's been forgiven. He's been restored. And God has even blessed that relationship with Bathsheba to bring Solomon through it. And God has even allowed him to continue as king. No, I put at the end here uh, a variety of applications. I'll tell you up front that the one big application I want you to remember is the last one. The last one is what you call the big idea of this chapter, but I think some of the other ones were worth writing down when you have your life group tonight and you work through the questions below. Number one, hiding sin leads to greater sin and the destruction of our lives. The only hope for sin is confessing and repenting and then casting ourselves on the mercy of God through Jesus. A broken and contrite heart God will not despise. Isn't that what David discovered? Number two, true believers may pursue sin, but God will not allow them to remain in sin. God will discipline his children to break their love for sin and bring them back home. David discovered that one, didn't he? Number three, the pleasure of sin is never worth the long-term pain, is it? We have seen long-term pain spelled out very clearly in this chapter for his one-night fling. God disciplines his, God's discipline of his children is hard, but it's always intended for our good. God doesn't discipline his children because he hates them, but he disciplines them because he loves them. Number five, the Lord uses other Christians to confront us when we wander into sin, like God used Nathan to confront David. But here is the one I want you to remember. This is the big idea of the chapter. There are two things we need to take more seriously. The consequences of sin are much bigger than we realize, but the grace of God toward repentant sinners is much better than we can ever imagine, isn't it? 
The consequences are bigger than we realize, but God's grace to sinners after they repent is far better than we could ever imagine. Heavenly Father, thank you for this chapter. Thank you for this window into how you worked in David's life, and it provides a window as to how you work in our lives today. Thank you that part of this chapter reminds us that there are consequences to sin. There's fatherly discipline of children who choose to sin, but that's not because you hate us. It's always because you love us. But I especially thank you how you were so merciful to David when he repented and how you restored him and even restored that broken and weird relationship with Bathsheba and brought good out of it. Father, for each one of us when we repent, that we can be confident that you will take even the mess we've made of our life and bring something beautiful and sweet and glorious to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.